walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Welcome back to the Camino Podcast. I'm Dave Whitson. This is episode 7. And I want to tell you a story. Last spring, I had an opportunity to fly to Israel during my school spring break and spend some time hiking in the region. And I followed two routes. One was the Jesus Trail, which starts in Nazareth and then proceeds to the Sea of Galilee. And the second was a small part of the Abraham Path in Palestine. And the information that I got related to this route came from David Landis and Anna Dintemann, who had created a guidebook on the Jesus Trail. And they're also associated with a guidebook on the Camino Frances in Spain. And so, you know, I'd spent, as you do with a guidebook, a lot of time flipping through the pages, thinking about all the information, but also having those authors in the back of my mind. Well, at the end of the trip, I arrived in Jerusalem, and I had a a couple of days in Jerusalem. It just so happened that my visit coincided with Shabbat. Now, if you've never been to Israel, then you might not be aware of just to what degree Shabbat is observed. But basically, from sundown on Friday through sundown on Saturday, everything shuts down. Everything. As, you know, particularly in the Jewish por- portions of the city. And so it, it's like a ghost town. The streets empty out, the restaurants all close, the cafes that were buzzing and full of people, the rest of the week are empty. You can just walk down the middle of the street, and aside from the occasional taxi whipping past, everything is closed. And there are some options for food. Of course, the hostels and hotels that cater to tourists have some options available. But your options are otherwise supremely limited. So as Saturday wore on, you can imagine I was getting a little antsy. You know, I was I was ready to go get a good dinner somewhere. And the place that I decided to go that night was Tmol Shilshom, which is a bookstore cafe that is, you know, well-reviewed re- online. And so I decided I was going to go there. And I got there right when they opened. And it was going to take a little while because the, the oven was warming back up. And and so I just settled in. You know, it's a bookstore. It had Wi-Fi. I was sitting there and having a nice, relaxing evening, looking forward to some hot food. And then I look across the cafe, and a group of people has just walked in, including this couple with a really young child and as I looked across it it, they looked familiar and I paused and then it hit me and I I grabbed the guidebook out of my bag and I looked at the pictures of the authors and I realized that in fact the authors of the guidebook that I had been following had just walked in to the cafe and you know I 
I'm uh, I'm a relatively shy person, and I am I didn't want to interrupt their dinner. They were out with friends, and so I just sort of laughed and smiled and thought about you know the Camino magic, you know that we often have these coincidences, these serendipitous moments occur related to pilgrimage where exactly the right thing happens at the right time or you run into someone who you were just thinking about a moment before and and here I was in in Jerusalem and I picked the one cafe where the authors of this guidebook that I've been using for the last week happened to walk in so I sent David an email that night and I said hey thanks uh thanks for the book thanks for your work uh, and uh Funny story, I was in Tamil Shilshom tonight, and I think I saw you there. And he responded and said, geez, you should have said something. And uh, so anyway, we arranged to meet the next day, and I got to know David a little bit. And, uh, and uh, you know, I've just always been so impressed by the work that David and Anna do on their guidebooks. While you might be familiar with the Camino de Santiago one, the Jesus Trail book is is really striking. They don't have as much route to cover in there because the Jesus Trail itself is about four days. They do supplement it with information on other uh, extensions in the area. But instead, they fill the book with all kinds of interesting background information, cultural info, and, and related material that deepened my experience on the trail in a really significant way. So I'm happy to have David and Anna on the podcast today to talk about both their work on the Camino de Santiago, but also in the Middle East to help inspire some thinking among all of you about the possibilities of hiking and pilgrimage in the Holy Land. So in this episode, I'll speak with David and Anna, and then I'll also speak with Gary Yee, a pilgrim from Kalispell, Montana, about his experience on the Camino Frances over the summer. So that's what's ahead. Thanks for joining me, and uh, stay tuned. I'm speaking with David Landis and Anna Dintemann, who are the authors of two guidebooks, one to the Camino Frances and the other to the Jesus Trail in Israel. David and Anna, thanks for joining me. Glad to be here. It's great to have you on. So as I just said, the two of you have produced these two really stunning guidebooks. They're visually appealing and, of course, loaded with information. So I'm curious how you got started as guidebook authors and creators. What's your backstory? Well, it's kind of the story of our lives in a lot of ways. We um, both traveled a lot over the years. Um, After university, I I took a year and a half and did a round-the-world trip and hiked a lot in different places around the world. And that led me to a variety of trails, uh, eventually back to the Middle East where I had done a study abroad program. And I got involved with a project, the local friend, to create a hiking route called the Jesus Trail, which was a a four-day trail from Nazareth to Capernaum in the Sea of Galilee. (laughs) And that was a project that kind of took on a life of its own and went through the whole life cycle of really developing a trail from idea to reality. And so... As that grew, as hikers started to come, we felt the need for a guidebook there Mm -hmm. and decided, hey, let's just try it ourselves. Um, We've used a lot of guidebooks. We've uh, experienced a lot of these trails, um, different places, and, you know, let's write the book we wanted to. So 
while we were working on on that project, um, developing the whole trail, we thought, well, you know, the Camino is a the world class pilgrimage route. Let's let's hike the Camino and see what we can learn. So Anna and I both hiked that while we were each working with the Jesus Trail at separate times and then um, took a lot of those lessons back to the Jesus Trail and then later came back to to um, write the Hiking the Camino guidebook. Hmm. But you know, a lot of our story is, you know, we're passionate travelers and we love to learn about different places, countries and cultures mm-hmm. and wanted to really create the books that we loved using while we were traveling. Mm-hmm. So it was a great opportunity there. What have you learned about guidebooks as you've moved through the process of creating and revising these two books? We've learned a lot about writing guidebooks. <laughs> um, I, I think it's the kind of uh, job or task that from a distance seems like it would be really fun. <laughs> and um, I think a lot of travelers kind of dream about being Lonely Planet authors or um, striking out on guidebooks. Um, I mean, I think, you know, one of the biggest things we learned very quickly is that it's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the field work is indeed very fun. You're out um, walking, meeting people, experiencing kind of the tourism side. But behind the scenes after that, there's really a lot of computer work and fact checking and things that are not quite as exciting initially. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also a big challenge um, that is that is an interesting challenge and a challenge we enjoy is um, I think it's very important to do kind of the big picture framing where you really invite your readers to enter into the experience and to give them the kind of background and introduction um, that gets them excited and um, kind of helps them frame the experience before they even get there on the ground. Um, But they say the devil's in the detail and that's uh, very true in a guidebook that sometimes the the things people will remember is that the phone number was wrong or the open <laughs> hours of the museum were wrong. Yep. Uh, so I think kind of doing that framing and big picture uh, along with very rigorous details and fact checking is the the challenge and the beauty of a guidebook that is kind of utilitarian but can also be artistic and beautiful mm-hmm. um, and philosophical even. Um, and I think the final thing that I I would think of uh, what I've learned is just that it is very rewarding. Um, it can be nerve wracking to kind of put yourself out there with anything that, that anyone publishes, um, seeing your writing in print. Um, but you also have this very unique opportunity to, uh, influence and to guide and to assist thousands of people in their journey. Um, so that's kind of a, a a privilege that is ultimately very rewarding to me. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. And maybe if I can add a bit, just I mean, I think it is the combination of being inspirational and then being like a resource of rock solid practical information that's almost encyclopedic in nature. And that's a, I like that kind of challenge to, you know, make it very clear and intuitive, but also make it beautiful and inspirational and really, you know, make someone say, well, I'm actually going to decide to do this trail this year. And so I think that's a process we've really enjoyed doing together. And it's always been fun to watch people send us pictures with the books or, I mean, even when we did the Jesus Trail website, when the, it was just a concept, people started showing up three, four days later saying, we're here to hike the trail. And, you know, just seeing people use the books and the websites and the resources is really what I think makes it meaningful for us. Yeah. And I think you guys have really struck that balance really well. Your your books are are beautiful. They're really stunningly designed and yet they are stuffed full of information. So I think you've you've really found a great way of formatting your guidebooks. 
so I'm interested in particular in your decision to create a guidebook into the a guidebook to the Camino Frances, where there were already lots of English language options for the route. What is dis- in your mind distinct about your approach to developing a guidebook to the Frances? Well, when we walked the Camino the first time, um, you know, we surveyed the information out there. And of course, there is a lot. Um, there's a lot more in Spanish and French and German than mm-hmm. in English. And some information is online, some is in print. But we felt like that there was still the space for the book that we really wanted to carry with us. Um, and we weren't thinking about writing a book on the Camino at that time, but just wanted to learn from the experience and actually have the experience ourselves. And we even walked it individually the first time to each have that personal experience. Hmm. But we felt, you know, the Camino Frances is such a historic route. It's such a meaningful experience for so many people. And, um, yeah, I think we really wanted to just give something back to it, also because it had given something to us in terms of our own personal journeys. So we thought, let's make a book that is, you know, like we said, very rock solid on the practical, that has detailed maps to scale, which is something none of the books really had at that point, mm-hmm. and had a companion website with GIS data, and also a book that put the uh, Camino Finisterra along in the same book with the Frances. Some, some other approaches had split them up, and we felt most people do them together, and why not bundle it into the same book? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we felt like, yeah, there was still space for another book. Um, we got a lot of feedback affirming that after the book was published, and really happy to see you know more information out there and it was around it was around the same time that the movie the way came out which also put the camino on americans radar mm-hmm. to a new level so there was a lot of people out there just hungry for information about the camino and and i think we're very happy to see more resources and from a different perspective or a variety of styles yeah you guys had great timing on that <laughs> that worked out very well One other guidebook-related question that I wanted to ask, because there are, in addition to a lot of print materials, lots and lots of online materials available related to the different Caminos de Santiago. And there are some who will say that all you really need are the online tools or an app, and that will suffice. So from your perspective, why still carry a print guidebook, and how can that enrich the experience? Sure, that's a great question. Um, It's true that there are so many resources online and you can really learn almost everything there. Um, But you have to do a lot of sleuthing and uh, checking different sources. Um, A lot of the best resources that I've found online are only available in Spanish um, or sometimes other languages. Um, And I think many, many pilgrims on the the Camino are particularly interested in getting away from technology in Mm. some way. for some people, that means not carrying a smartphone and, and not checking their email. For some people, that just means um, you know they only do that in the evenings and not while they're walking or things like that. Um, so in that uh, side of things, the old technology of the printed book um, is is kind of at an advantage. Um, also, in, in hiking in general, there's um, a little bit of, I guess, skepticism sometimes about more technology that has, um, you know, the ability to fail when you're out um, mm. in the field and you need it the most. Maybe you run out of battery, maybe it's raining and you don't want to get out your, your expensive piece of equipment, um, any variety of things that can go wrong with technology um, on the on the technical side of things rather than more the philosophical side of things. Um, for me, I read 
almost all of my literature and books like that on an e-reader, but the guidebook is the one book, wherever I go, that I want to have a physical copy. Um, I like to be able to just thumb through easily, kind of skip from chapter to chapter, think about where I've been, look at where I'm going. And also, um, there's something kind of satisfying about having that memento. You can uh, write notes in the margin. You can see the smudges of dirt from a particularly muddy day or a particularly mm. wet day. And it kind of uh, carries some of those memories with it um, as a memento and as a souvenir uh, that you really can't replicate on an e-reader uh, or on a website. Mm -hmm. um, so to me, that's, a, that's the type of book that's going to stay, at least for me. Um, uh, on that note, though, we are working at making uh, both of our guidebooks into ebooks for people who do prefer to go a bit lighter or who, for whatever reason, prefer to use um, um, an electronic book. Mm. Yeah. If I can add to, I, I believe some people also like to just have both options together. Some people will read the print book, sit it on their coffee table, and you know, dream about it for a year before they go, and then maybe take in a digital copy with them. But but like Anna said, it is, uh, for a lot of people, a safety um, function in a mechanism. When you're in the wilderness, it's a safety function to have some sort of paper maps. And even the guidebook app developers pretty strongly say in their disclaimers that you should always have a paper map with you. Mm -hmm. um, it's more of a risk in wilderness areas versus what most of the Camino is, but I think it's still valuable to have um, some sort of device that will navigate for you that does not uh, run out of battery or if you drop it in a stream or something will will die on you so yeah I thought of some more things sorry I forgot mm -hmm. to add um, I think my, my greatest frustration as a traveler is when I go to a place and leave it and then realize <laughs> there was something really interesting there that I didn't see yeah. Um, and I often find if I'm gathering from a lot of sources, if I'm looking at this website and that website, that that's not always at my fingertips when I need it. Um, whereas if you have a guidebook where you can just flip to the page and you're like, oh, wow, there's a really important historical site here or there's a really important museum that I should definitely visit. Um, I think it, it can really cut down on that traveler regret that, that people sometimes experience. Hmm. We've been talking a lot about guidebooks and guidebook mechanics. So let's talk a little bit more about walking. Uh, in terms of the Camino Frances, I'm just curious, what is each of your favorite place on the Camino Frances? There are so many places to choose <laughs> from. It's, it's pretty challenging. Uh, but the first, the first two that kind of come to mind are uh, uh, kind of maybe the traditional first day. Obviously, people can begin at many different first days. Um, but the first day, crossing the Pyrenees, uh, for people that begin at Saint-Jean and go to Roncevay over the Napoleon Pass, um, there's a site along there where there's a statue of the Virgin Mary overlooking mm. the Pyrenees. Um, and I just remember the first time when I got there, you're, you're not quite done climbing there, but you've climbed quite a good bit. Um, and there's something about looking out over the mountains and really just beginning your journey. There are people all around you. You're a little bit nervous, but you're also kind of feeling like, I'm doing it. <laughs> um, I have a lot to go, but I'm there and I'm doing it. Um, that's always stuck in my mind. It's a really inspirational place to me. Um, and the other place that came to mind is more kind of the end for many people at Finisterre, where you're looking out on the ocean and you have this feeling like, I really can't walk any further. I'm, I'm at the ocean. Mm. Um, there are a lot of different rituals people do there to kind of close the journey. Uh, so those are two places that always stick in my mind as, as having particular significance and meaning. Sure. Yeah. And, and for me, like Anna said, there's so many places that it's a very diverse route and it's hard to kind of pick one. But I think one of my favorite spots is the Cruz Ferro, where you're coming up into Galicia for the first time, 
because you've finished the physical challenging part coming out of the Pyrenees, and that's spectacular for many reasons. And then you kind of go through this long trial across the Meseta. And then when you start to rise up into the hills again, you kind of like rise over the Cruz Ferro, which kind of signifies your home stretch. And then everyone kind of takes this moment for a sacred space for themselves, I think, to reflect or reflect for themselves or reflect on others. And I think it's one of those places along the Camino that is so unique and representative of what people um, sort of leave behind as they go through the, the journey, which is so transformative for many people. And and it's kind of that shedding off that then launches them towards the end and starts thinking about how do we finish well and what's next. Mm. While people listening are likely to be familiar with the Camino Frances and with your guidebook to that route, they're probably unaware of the Jesus Trail. So could you describe that route? What's the history behind it and where does it pass through? The, the Jesus Trail is a four-day hiking route in northern Israel in the Galilee that starts in Nazareth, Jesus' childhood hometown, and follows a verse from Matthew saying that he went towards Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. It's a route that uh, I developed with a friend I met traveling starting in 2007, which has really become popular and to the point where there's more than 5,000 people here walking these four days. Um, So the route passes from Nazareth to a Roman city of Sipuri, which is beautiful mosaics, to the town of Kafarkana, which is biblical Cana, where Jesus turned the water to the wine. Passes through um, Muslim villages, Christian villages, Jewish villages, farming communities, Moshav, Thim, um, over the site of the Horns of Hattin, where the Crusaders lost to Salahaddin and the Muslims in, the, in that period. And then descends down to the Sea of Galilee um, with the spectacular view off the cliffs above the lake there. So it's become a, you know, a pilgrimage route for many people. It's also a route where people come to see the diversity of the Middle East. There's very few places where you can walk between those types of different religious communities and get so many slices of history from, from you know, earlier than even 2,000 years ago. Um, through the crusader history, through the modern era, through the current, you know, political and cultural issues that challenge the Middle East. So it's really a great experience for a lot of people. Mm. I had the chance to walk it last spring, and that moment atop the horns of Hattin, when you are staring down the cliff and and into the Sea of Galilee, it's it's one of the most striking sights that I've seen. It really is a gorgeous walk. Yeah, it's it's really a beautiful route and a standalone spectacular hiking route and like from the horns fatin you can see the entire galilee region and see the majority of the places that the bible mentions jesus visiting or ministering to throughout his adult ministry and when we decided to write the guidebook we said let's expand beyond these four days and let's try to see if we can connect by walking trails every place the new testament mentions jesus having been in this in the galilee in the galilee so when we wrote the book, we added another 220 kilometers, about 150 miles of additional trails. So you could do a two to three week hike um, along these these routes. Mm-hmm. What's the actual walking experience like? Are there way marks? Where do people sleep? So what are some of those logistical things that people might be wondering about? Sure. The trail is um, waymarked. It was waymarked by the Israel Trails Committee. Uh, They have a particular paint blaze style. So it has orange and white blazes. Um, 
There are accommodation options about every 15 kilometers. Um, there are um, not nearly as many as, say, the Camino Frances, um, but there's a variety from uh, home uh, family guest houses to there's even one four-star hotel option. Uh, there's a goat farm that has uh, geodesic domes to sleep in. Uh, so there's really a variety of um, accommodations. And um, it's a lot of rural walking on earthen paths and also goes through a number of small to medium-sized villages. Uh, so you kind of get a lot of nature as well as uh, some of the culture uh, aspects. You know, many people who complete the Camino Frances find themselves wanting to go back or do a new walk. And I think some of your answers already speak to this, but I'm, I'm curious if, if you could try to pitch them on the Jesus Trail. What, what does it offer them that is a nice supplement or addition to their experience on the Camino Frances? Sure, that's a great question. And we've had a lot of uh, people come to the Jesus Trail as kind of looking at a follow-up experience for the Camino. I would encourage Camino walkers to come with a very open mind and not not expect um, maybe the level of infrastructure and uh, signage and uh, everything that that is readily available at least on the Camino Frances. Um, but I, I think for me, what what would be what was interesting about the Jesus Trail in uh, contrast to the Camino is how close you are to some of those original biblical stories. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something kind of raw about seeing these sites um, in person, uh, um, not necessarily interpreted through a church tradition or a religious tradition, but just seeing the stories themselves sort of come alive around you. Um, so to me, that proximity to the stories um, is what really makes the Jesus Trail and kind of the Holy Land in general very, um, very enlightening. I definitely get that. I had a moment when I was walking when it just struck me. Like I knew going in the reality of it, but it didn't hit me till I was there that I was literally walking through the Bible. That's a it's a it's a really um, just fascinating thing to to realize to experience. And um, every day there were multiple places that are featured prominently in the in the life of Jesus in the New Testament. And it's interesting because the biblical geography, most of it is fairly compact. To that, I mean with Jesus' life in the Galilee and Jerusalem. But a lot of people don't realize everything is a day's walk or less. Mm-hmm. That's the way people live. And and a lot of these same old paths became modern paths, and you can still retrace the same routes that people have walked for thousands and thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And there's something really powerful about that, I think, to go back that far and know how much history you're, you're setting foot on. Before recently returning to the U.S., you were both actively involved with the Abraham Path Initiative. And as is the case with Jesus Trail, many listening are probably unfamiliar with this. So what exactly is the Abraham Path? The Abraham Path is a long-distance walking trail across the Middle East um, that would follow the journey of Abraham from Turkey all the way to Egypt. Uh, It was an initiative started by Harvard University's a negotiation program in 2007 um, as a way to promote um, social understanding between different people in the region and uh, a way for economic empowerment of the different communities located along the path. So between between Turkey and Egypt, um, the project initiated a number of um, local projects to create different hiking trails through the region. Um, for example, in in 
Palestine in the West Bank now, there's a, a 320 kilometer continuous walking path um, really owned by the local community called Masar Ibrahim, locally in Arabic, that follows the route of Abraham very, you know, roughly, but more the cultural memory of Abraham through these villages across the West Bank. And so, you know, one of the greatest strengths of the project is how it has inspired a lot of local hiking initiatives, but also extended a way for the region's hospitality to be accessible and available to internationals who would like to walk following in the footsteps of Abraham. And Abraham's story was 4,000 years ago. Um, the historical record of Abraham is a bit um, loose, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> the historical record of Abraham is, is not so known, um, but a lot of what people remember from Abraham is his generosity and hospitality. So walking the path is a a great opportunity for people to be hosted by local communities to make friends along the way. And Abraham in Arabic is also known as Khalil, which is, means the friend or the friend of God. So there is a very strong notion of friendship associated with Abraham uh, along the path throughout the Middle East. It was really striking to me when I was there that the most common word that I heard as I hiked part of the Abraham path in Palestine was welcome. Everywhere I went, people were telling me I was welcome, welcome, welcome. And uh, I remember one shop in a village where I walked in and I was I was pretty sweaty. And uh, the guy just pulled a chair out from behind the counter, gestured for me to sit, pulled out an ice cream bar, had me sit there and eat the ice cream bar, wouldn't let me pay for it. Um, and, and this was just a recurring theme. I don't know how many times I was stopped in the countryside by farmers to drink coffee out of uh, small paper cups, but... Um, the the generosity was uh, was profound and prevalent throughout the walks. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is the classic experience of, of walking in the Middle East. Is you know people even saying they were imprisoned by hospitality because <laughs> you get stopped so many times along the way. Some people are curious, what are you doing? Most people just want to sit and talk and offer you a bit of kindness from their their tradition. So this is the Middle East that we've hoped all these projects really communicate and show the world. And, and it's, you know, the, the best way to experience the Middle East is at this human level. And the best way to do that is by walking. So we really believe, you know, the Abraham path, the Jesus trail, all of the trail initiatives in the Middle East right now, which are really, really growing and exploding despite the challenges of the region. We really hope that these are a platform for people meeting other people in a very human way, um, getting beyond the politics a bit and just having that experience, which, really is so classic, the hospitality experience of the Middle East. And with the Abraham Path, we've, we've mapped out and developed in a similar guidebook way more than 2,000 kilometers, 1,200 miles of trails throughout uh, the region. Um, so that's a great resource also for local hikers, for international hikers, and we hope it will be a platform that will continue to develop for a long time. I think you've already in part at least answered this question but if you have anything else to add i'm curious what do you love about walking in the middle east what is distinct about walking in that region well, i think you're right that we've, we've already touched pretty strongly on the hospitality aspect and the human to human aspect but that is um for me absolutely the the most uh the thing that makes the greatest impression to me about walking in the middle east um, and i think um when many people sometimes have some negative stereotypes about people in the Middle East, uh, it's it's really important to have that experience um, and to to combat some of those negative stereotypes. 
Um, also, I, I touched on this with the Jesus Trail, the density, the sheer density of historical sites is, is really interesting. Many places you might walk for weeks or days or months before you would uh, hit a particularly interesting historical site, but in the Middle East, they're just really around every corner. Uh, I remember taking a break somewhere on a hill. I don't even remember exactly where it was. Um, and I was resting on my hand. And when I picked it up, there was a uh, mosaic tile stuck to it, <laughs> like a small, you know, the type that they used in, in Byzantine times. Um, and I just sort of brushed at the dirt. And I'm like, oh, well, there is a mosaic there. Um, and of course, in North America, we have, we have nothing uh, quite like that as far as historical depth. But um, there's just something fascinating about really every hilltop and every corner uh, having historical um, interest and um, having history and a story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I would add to, I think, just, I mean, the history along these trails just blows you away. I remember last last winter we were hiking in uh, South Sinai towards towards Mount Sinai, St. Catherine's Monastery, in the middle of nowhere in the desert. And, you know, we come across this, this path that's literally, like, pounded into the ground about a foot deep. And I, and I asked the Bedouin guide, like, you know, what is this from? He's like, well, this is the ancient pilgrimage route that came from Pet you know and then came from Jerusalem in this way and came from Gaza and he said my my grandfather used to guide pilgrims here even before the modern states were developed and this path was being down so deep just by foot traffic and then along it you see these etchings of crosses of footprints that pilgrims have done they say back to the Byzantine period mm-hmm. and then if you keep going along this route there's this Hajar al-Maktub it's like the stone written with different words you see even like Armenian uh, script, Aramaic, like all of these ancient, ancient writings from old, old pilgrimages. And you feel like, wow, this isn't just, you know, since, you know, the Crusades, for example, with the Camino. But this goes back to, you know, 1500, 1700 years of people who have walked these paths to create this beautiful, you know, permanent route in stone in the desert. So you just have constant experiences like this that kind of blow you away. Because the region's so rich, so complex, so deep. You've lived in Jerusalem in recent years, and you know Santiago, Rome, and Jerusalem are the three centers of Catholic pilgrimage tradition. Many modern pilgrims will walk to Santiago. Some, in growing numbers, will walk to Rome as well, but many more will travel there by plane or train. So they'll see it, they'll experience it. But Jerusalem is more elusive for many and I realize this is a really difficult kind of uh, open-ended question to answer, but I'm curious for your perspective, how is a visit to Jerusalem unique among the three as a sacred place? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a hugely unique experience. Um, I mean, all three of those are, are unique experiences. Um, but uh, again, as I mentioned before, you're, you're really so close to um, these stories from the Bible and these stories uh, from different religious traditions, and I think that that raw connection to those sites uh, is is incredibly unique. Um, Jerusalem also obviously is is sacred to um, a variety of religions, not only Christianity. Mm-hmm. So you kind of uh, really come very close to that mosaic of history and religion um, that is so fascinating and so complex. I mean, there's no place in the world quite like <laughs> Jerusalem. It's uh, it's the most complex, contested, um, interesting place you can probably find out there. And um, it's highly worth a visit. Um, we've lived there about four years, um, working with the Abraham Path and developing routes throughout the region. But 
for us, it's always kind of been a center of the area there and um, always was interesting, sometimes challenging, but always interesting for sure. What's the next walk for you two that you're hoping to complete that you haven't yet experienced? So many walks we'd love to do. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we, we took our, our son last, last year to the Jesus Trail when he was about two and a half months wow. old along the trail. And so we're always looking for new ways to get out as a growing family. And we'd like to try to do the Camino Portugues this year, I think, with him and try, try to do it from that perspective. Um, also looking to explore some of the long trails in the U.S. a bit more, uh, the Continental Divide Trail, PCT and AT. Um, but those are huge endeavors and, you know, one thing at a time. But it's always a growing list. The more you experience, the more things you want to see um, on your travel bucket list as you go along. David and Anna, thank you both for joining me, talking me, with me about your books and about your work in the Middle East. Thanks. It's great to be with you. And yeah, we really encourage everyone to get out there and, and go and start the walk, whether the Camino or any other route. Um, it's one of the most meaningful things that you can do. I'm talking with Gary Yee of Kalispell, Montana, who's just enjoyed a gloriously sunny day in Montana. Gary, thanks for coming on the podcast. Absolutely. So tell me about your pilgrimage. Uh, when did you go and, and what route did you take? And, and what are some of the, the, the broad brushstrokes of your experience? Okay. Um, I left uh, the 22nd of June. Okay. And um, I was there. I, I got back. August 8th, so um, I allowed myself plenty of time. Not sure how much time I needed, but I allowed myself plenty <laughs> of time for this venture. <laughs> it turned out I, I, I had way more time than I needed. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And did you yeah, do the, I, the Camino Frances? Yes, I did. I, uh, I just flew out of Kalispell, flew into Madrid, um, made my way... Uh, on the train to Pamplona, um, I, I hardly speak any Spanish at all. So I, I threw myself at the mercy of other people that <laughs> worked pretty well. <laughs> this is something people worry about a lot. Like there's a lot of anxiety about both which airport to fly into and then how you're going to make it to the starting point. So you flew into Madrid. How hard was it to get from there to your starting point? You know, it wasn't too bad. Uh, the Camino Forum is great, by the way. If, if people haven't gone to Camino Forum, there's mm -hmm. just tons of information there. And I was able to get to, I think it was Terminal 4. From I think I, I flew into Terminal 1, figured out how to get to Terminal 4, um, and probably the most difficult thing is that my bank card wasn't working. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> yeah, I opened a specific bank card for this, and 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 after a hundred dollars, just shut it down. <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna need more than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I can go on the cheap and not that cheap. Uh, <laughs> luckily, I I had my uh, Visa card, and then so everything was good after that. It's good. Okay, yeah. so you made it, and did you start in Saint-Jean then? 
Uh, I did. I did. I um, again through the the website forum. Um, I found someone that um, had a had an Auburn in mm-hmm. I believe Zalbadika, and um, they actually came out to Pamplona train station and picked me up. Nice. Brought me to their to their hostel, the Auburn, and then spent the night. And the next day, they they drove me to Saint John. It was. So absolutely painless. I feel guilty. It's so easy. <laughs> yeah, that's so easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I, I dinked around St. John, John for a little while, and uh, I, I think I didn't start hiking until about ten. So I, I had a lot of the trail to myself that morning. Yeah, yeah. You were a few hours behind most of the pilgrims, and were you headed all the way through to Roncevalle that day? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, you, you know, I, I live in northwest Montana, and I do a lot of hiking and cycling here. And, yep. and so, you know, as far as conditioning, I, I felt pretty confident that, you know, the physical demands I was able to, to, to meet. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one thing that, um, you know, knock on wood, that really, really worked for me is, to keep my pack light. Mm-hmm. I can't stress that enough. I, <laughs> um, I'm also a photographer, so even with my DSLR and three lenses and a iPad mini, um, I kept my pack weight to 12 and a half pounds without water. So Wow, bravo. Yeah. What's your secret then? Because you, you have a lot of tech gear in there. That's adding uh, at least a couple pounds to your bag. So how are you... How are you cutting weight in other areas? Um, I, I really focus on just one change of clothes. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I would have lost a pair of socks or underwear, I didn't have shit. <laughs> <laughs> so I can't leave anything behind. Um, and I do a lot of backpacking, so I, I'm pretty used to being a uh, weight meanie, as they call it, and, and just really weighing everything as I packed it. I think this is one of the things that people often don't recognize when they're preparing for the Camino and seeking advice through a forum or, or wherever else that the people walking the Camino have a radically wide range of experiences and uh, physical levels of physical conditioning going into the trip. So you have, you know, older people who've never stretched their bodies in any way. This is far and away the most ambitious thing they've ever done. And then there are people like yourself for whom the walk over the Pyrenees might actually feel relatively tame compared to some of the mountain trekking you've done. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. And and when and, and when you're on the journey, like mm-hmm. you said, you do meet people of all different physical shapes and conditioning. <laughs> yeah, I remember this woman from from Canada, and she had this huge pack on. Mm-hmm. It, it must have been a sixty liter pack. And 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 I remember her going uphill, and and the shoulder of the pack. I kid you not 
was leaning about a foot and a half away from her back. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, oh, <laughs> you're making it so hard. Um, but, you know, people are are gracious on the Camino, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember um, coming across... Uh, uh, he, he ended up being a great friend after after um, the rest of the trip. Um He's he's a he's a he's an American and mm-hmm. he teaches abroad in Ethiopia. I believe he teaches wow. fourth grade. And he was using hiking poles and and I gave him some pointers about how to use the straps on the hiking poles and so that he's not gripping the pole all the time and mm-hmm. uh, and it changed. You mentioned the graciousness of pilgrims. Let's talk about this. There's this community of pilgrims on the Camino that is really notable in its own way. What do you remember about the community of pilgrims? I I really remember how open people were. Mm. And... um, it's it, it's kind of hard to describe. I mean, in a way, you can have such deep, deep conversations, um, almost instantaneously. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's great. I was trying to explain it to someone. It's 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 like pilgrim speed dating or something. <laughs> somehow, <laughs> that's awesome. Somehow, you know, you are able to sense that that certain people are willing to have these deep, insightful conversations. Yeah. Um, you know, here in the States, when we go out for a hike, you know, we'll either pass somebody or someone passes us and we'll, we'll greet them and say, hi, how, how are you? And, mm-hmm. and then that's about it. Yep. <laughs> that's not true of the Camino, you know? Um, I mean, just daily, hourly, um, I find myself either adjusting my pace to have a conversation with someone or somebody else adjusting their pace to have a conversation with me. And, and, and I don't know if it's the anonymity involved in it. I, I kind of actually don't think so because, um, you know, once you've been on the road for a while, it's not like you never see these people again. You actually end up really seeing them quite a bit, you know. Yeah. So, what do you think? Um, what do you think it is? What's the difference? Uh, I, I I think people that go on it, um, that take on this endeavor, mm-hmm. they're they're on a search, mm-hmm. and I think because they're on a search that also have put themselves in a place where they're maybe more open. It's I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's it's something that yeah. I wonder about a lot. Why why do we why do so many of us who go on pilgrimage recognize how how really nice it is to have this openness with others to say hello to every stranger you pass on the street or on the trail and then so quickly revert back to our our silos uh at home 
and uh-huh. uh, and yet that's certainly true for me and i think it's true for a lot of others that the our pilgrim selves are are different in many ways from our home selves yeah and you know i think it's a challenge to um bring our pilgrim selves back home mm-hmm. and I, I i think that that's in large part, I think that's where the work is. When you're there, you're open, you're vulnerable, and and things just kind of happen. Yeah. I suspect the albergues play a part in it as well, just living with all of these people, being around them constantly every single day. Is there an albergue that stands out in your memory as being particularly significant for you and your experience? Um, the albergue is in Zalbabika, mm. and, um, it, it, it's a parish albergue, and it's run by Sisters of the Sacred Heart. Yeah. And this is one of those places where, you know, the, the night before, I think it was just my second night, and I was with a group of people very fond of and had more to drink than I wanted to. <laughs> and so the next morning I'm walking, and, and I ended up walking by myself, and I'm trying to decide, well, you know, what kind of experience I wanted, you know. I mean, well, maybe for now a little different experience. And I stopped at this very small 13th century church. Yeah. And... Uh, I didn't even know that there was an Alberta attached to it. And um, I went inside the chapel. They, the sisters had a little bit of Gregorian chants playing on a CD. Yeah. <laughs> did you go up to ring the bell? I did. I it's did. so awesome. I did ring the bell. <laughs> oh, it was so cool. And that was one of the first, you know, Spirostone staircases I've been up, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, and I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, I'm just like, tears are just running down my face, and one of the sisters comes up to me and says, ah, you might want to read this, and I, and I, and, and, um, and I did, and it was something about prayers for pilgrims or something like that, or questions for pilgrims. Mm-hmm. And, and so the philosophy gets turned on even more. Oh, no. The tears are coming out <laughs> even more. And, uh, and then the sister comes back to me a little bit later and says, you look like you should stay here. And I said, oh, is this an albergue? And she said, yes. And so I said, well, I'd love to stay here. And... Uh, he took such nice care of me yeah. that night. It's just a special, special place. It's small. I mean, I, I I don't even know if it had more than 25 beds or something. Yeah, I think that's about right. Yeah, I, and it's yeah. off stage, which makes it even nicer, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah, yeah. so you've been there. I had a very good night there once. I, w- I stayed there with a group of students, and it was St. James Day. So they were, yeah, it was great timing. The nuns were holding a special mass in the church, and it also happened to be one of my students' birthdays. So it was awesome. One of the Hospitaleras packed me into her car, and we drove around to 
three different supermarkets until we found a birthday cake that we could use. And, uh, and so, you know, my group along with probably 10 other pilgrims all had a nice big birthday cake along with the communal dinner. So it was just a, an awesome, awesome place. Oh, great, great, great. Yeah. How many times have you, have you done the Francais? Um, six times. Oh, wow. And you've taken high school students? Yeah, I've taken high school students on five of those trips. Oh, I think wow. I think wow. I have the numbers right there. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's uh, really just a great fortune um, to have had those opportunities. Um, let's let's fast forward uh, from near the beginning of your trip to the end. And one of the things I'm really curious about, just based on my experiences and, and talking with others, for those who continue on to Finisterre, I find that there's sometimes a split. For some, they find that arriving in Santiago was the really meaningful moment and the moment of completion and accomplishment. But for others, it's Finisterre that makes that come about. What was it for you? Did you did you find that one was more momentous for you than the other, or how do you how do you remember those feelings of arrival in those two locations? I, for me, Finisterre was always the end destination. You mm-hmm. know, I, I knew that that's where I would complete my my Camino. Mm-hmm. So. So maybe it's a little bit different because I already had the mindset that I would go on. Um, Having said that, um, Santiago was actually a surprise to me. Hmm. Um, Mainly because the day before, two days before Santiago, um, it just gets really crowded. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, there's just a whole lot of people, and and then you're hiking through the city, and then and then all of a sudden it's there. <laughs> it actually <laughs> takes you by surprise, you know. Yeah. Like, oh, it's here, <laughs> and um, so I think what kind of brought that around and the whole Santiago experience around for me also. Um, or, or it may have contributed to it. We arrived the weekend of St. James um, Festival. Oh my gosh! St. James. Yeah, it's a madhouse. So it was very, very crowded. I mean, it was it was it was crazy. And um, even starting four days building up to it, we started booking places, um, uh-huh. calling ahead, you know, to reserve. Yeah. Uh, at albergues, and we hadn't had to do that at all before. So that was a different experience. And then we also um, booked on Airbnb, actually, <laughs> a place in Santiago, which worked out great. And then Santiago itself, it, to me, when I think Santiago, I think the festival, the Feast of St. James. Sure. And, you know, it, it, it's less. Um, the cathedral for me, for mm-hmm. some reason. And, so and, you were you yeah. were there on the day of the festival itself? Yeah. Oh, my yeah. gosh. We got there on the Thursday, and we started going to Sinister on Sunday. And there were concerts every night, yeah. amazing music, amazing music. And um, there was the most spectacular firework and light show 
I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, so did they <laughs> right do it where they, they just flash it right across the face of the cathedral? Is that how it worked when you were there? Uh, well, the cathedral was, was uh, they were doing some repairs. Oh, right. Yeah, so they put it, uh, I, I think it's the city hall, is that what it is? Directly yeah. across from it? Yeah, so they put it there, and it was just phenomenal. Yeah. It was, yeah, I think we got there at 8.30 and we're jam-packed in like rats, <laughs> and we waited for two or three hours, and, and uh, they did this fantastic, light show and fireworks and they actually deconstructed the building and then rebuilt it back up and flamed it. And wow. It, it was, it was pretty neat. And they weren't launching too many fireworks off of the cathedral side, just a few. Mm -hmm. And the very, very, um, final salvos of the fireworks show, they started arcing, these white rockets closer and closer towards the cathedral and they were parking right over <laughs> our heads. <laughs> that's awesome. It, it was pretty amazing. Yeah. 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 That's a, that was totally worth it for you then, despite the, yeah. despite the crowds. Right, right, right. And I, I, I actually didn't mind the crowds at all. Yeah. Like I just thought, um, I mean, once I got to Santiago, I didn't mind the crowd. It, it was a little bit different, you know, the, the final two, three days sure. uh, into Santiago. It was just such a different experience than what I was used to. Yeah. But then starting off, the Sinistera, things quieted down again. Mm -hmm. I mean, there aren't that many. I, I don't know what the statistics are, you know, but it's a fraction of people. This is one of the things that people who walk from Saint-Jean really like about Finisterre is that after the the very busy state of affairs for the last week into Santiago, the trail starts to feel a little bit like it did in the early couple weeks of the of the Camino from Saint Jean. It's it opens up again, and you have some space. It's quieter, so it it does feel like you've you've gone back to where you started in some ways. Yes, yes, and and actually, you know, built some new relationships along the way mm -hmm. that final three days as well too. Um, yeah. So it's it's a it's a special special short little segment there. Yeah, let's wrap up here. If you could give one piece of advice to a new pilgrim, what would it be? Um, if you're going in summer and you have healthy ankles. <laughs> take trail runners, non Gore-Tex trail runners. <laughs> yeah. Um, I had zero blisters. Um, all the people that I hiked with that had blisters had boots on. Mm -hmm. No matter how light they were, they had boots on. And it, in the summer, it's just too hot. And you, your feet can't, uh, your shoes and your feet can't ventilate. And there's just too much moisture in there. This is one so, of those great grudge wars, of course, the boots versus shoes crowd. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't, I don't want to get between you and the boots crowd. But... <laughs> okay, okay. So I'll, I'll say something else then. We'll go someplace else then. All right. <laughs> no, it's, it's, uh, it's totally legit. I mean, I think, you know, I've never worn boots on the trail, but like you said, you know, I've got strong ankles. I don't have any foot problems. I don't need the additional support. And, um, for me, it's always been about having really lightweight footwear that's breathable, that has good airflow, and and that works for me. 
Sounds like it works for you yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, it works for me too. Yeah. Um, I, I, I would. Okay, so if I were going to say if, if I was going to avoid that conflict <laughs> <laughs> of boots and 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 shoes, even though I highly favor the shoes. <laughs> 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 oh, is um, I think a lot of people, certainly myself included, you know, that there's times that I want to isolate, mm. or maybe I'm a bit shyer than usual in certain situations. Mm-hmm. I would suggest people to just push against their edges on that and open themselves up because what you're going to get back is going to be unforgettable. That's great advice. It's it's advice that I should also take more often when I'm walking. So uh so I hear you there and uh, yeah, I echo yeah. It. I learned I learned this saying from the Germans. I, I really love traveling with the Germans and they have this saying that you always meet twice. Mm. And that's certainly true on the Camino. <laughs> sure. You know, you run into people again over and over. And I think um, on a larger scale, I believe it to be true as well, too. Yeah. So. Awesome. Gary Yee, thank you very much for talking with me. Okay. A pleasure. Anytime. To close out today's episode, I'd just like to offer a couple of additional thoughts from my experience hiking in Israel and Palestine last spring. First, on the Jesus Trail, this route is very well waymarked. Israel has, uh, as David said earlier, a wonderful network of well-marked trails throughout the country. It's possible to walk the full length of the country following a a well-marked trail network. The book that Anna and David have created is an excellent support tool. So between the waymarks and the guidebook, I felt very comfortable. I was never unclear about where I should turn, and I always felt like I was in good hands. The accommodation along the way, I primarily stayed in bed and breakfasts and smaller hotels, though in Nazareth there are a couple of wonderful guest house style hostels in historic buildings that are great experiences in and of themselves. As I said, the Horns of Hattin is this incredible viewpoint where you are perched up high staring out at the Sea of Galilee. And as you descend and arrive at the sea and start walking around it, there are a series of sacred sites associated very closely with Jesus that make for a really fascinating and enriching short final day of the walk. 
it is possible to continue from there to walk down the full length of the Sea of Galilee to even walk all the way around it. And it's possible to visit one of the major baptism sites further down, although it may be uh, historically inaccurate. There is still a major facility there that is striking in its own right. And it's also possible to then continue along a trail way marked and included in David and Anna's book right along the border between Israel and Palestine, which is a fascinating site in and of itself with all of the very large fences um, and security cameras. I didn't feel unsafe at all, but it was uh, very helpful for me to have that visual in mind as I think about the region and try to understand the complicated dynamics there. I had no difficulty crossing the border from Israel into Palestine from the north, and I traveled by bus uh, from there ultimately down to Nablus, which is a very large city in central Palestine. From there, I followed the Abraham path between Nablus and Jericho, which is the perhaps the oldest city in the world. And the way marking there is largely non-existent. You are dependent upon the online materials offered by the Abraham Path Initiative. And these are good. They're actually quite helpful. Um, but it is still, uh, it, it definitely requires far greater navigational experience and savvy than the Jesus Trail. And it would be wise to bring a GPS on the trip and, uh, again, some, some real experience with route finding and navigation. Those who are less comfortable with that can hire a local guide to accompany you. And that, in general, is recommended. My approach traveling solo on the Abraham path at this point is, is, is generally not advised uh, in large part because of the route, but also because it can be helpful just from a safety and security perspective to have a local with you to make it clear that you're there to hike and there's no uh, other political objective at work there. That does reflect the greater complexities of travel in the Middle East as opposed to, say, Spain or Italy, Many listening will wonder about the safety and the security involved, and there is to some degree a matter of um, subjectivity involved in, you know, is this safe, right? We all have different comfort zones. We're all comfortable with um, This does lead into a discussion, of course, about the safety and the security of the region. And we all have our different thresholds, our different comfort zones. For some, it's automatically not an option right now. And I definitely understand that. If you're not comfortable with the idea, then give it time and hope that the situation in the region improves. From my perspective, I can share that I never felt unsafe. I always felt welcomed. And I, even when I was unclear on the route on the Abraham path in Palestine, I never really felt unsteady or um, a- as though I needed to be concerned about my well-being. I was always very comfortable 
assuming that it would work out and that that I would be able to get to my final destination without any difficulty. It's important to make an informed decision. But Jerusalem is one of the most remarkable places I've ever visited. It feels incredibly significant and sacred and historical and momentous. I certainly love and appreciate and value Santiago and Rome. For me, Jerusalem felt fundamentally different and more intense. Um, And uh, I really valued my time there. And I hope that those who are interested can find a way to get there, to feel comfortable and experience um, the wonders of that remarkable city. That's going to do it for today. Thanks again to David Landis and Anna Dintemann for joining me and talking about their work on the Camino de Santiago and the Jesus Trail. You can find more information from them on hikingthecamino.com and also jesustrail.com. Thanks to Gary Yee for joining me to talk about his experience on the Camino Frances as well. Remember that you can contact me at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com and you can always find the podcasts on both SoundCloud and iTunes. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great week and I hope to talk again with you soon. Take care.